0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today, we have the story of Corporal Dakota Meyer. Meyer was serving with Embedded Training Team 28 out of Kunar Province, Afghanistan in 2009. And the time period we're going to talk about specifically, or the battle we're going to talk about, happens on 8 September 2009, and that's the Battle of Ganchgau. Now, many times when we talk about Medal of Honor recipients or Distinguished Cross, Navy Cross recipients, and any of these, we're going off of information from their comrades, from the people in their squad or their superior officers or, or anything, because usually the person that receives the award doesn't survive or you know maybe not usually I guess I don't know exactly what those percentages are but it's very very common for a medal of honor recipient to be awarded that medal um posthumously after they passed we're very fortunate that that's not the case when we talk about the story of Dakota Meyer so we are going to talk at a high level we're going to talk about the overall actions we're going to talk about some things he gets into that day in September we're going to talk about some of the main concerns and issues they ran into about why the battle took the direction that it did. But if you're even the least bit interested or want to learn more about this incredible Marine, this battle, the war in Afghanistan as a whole, or anything like that, take a look at his book. We're fortunate enough that we have a Medal of Honor recipient who has actually documented what they've been through, and a couple have now. But um, Meyer wrote a book, Into the Fire, um, wrote it with Bing West, and it's worth Checking out. Again, if you're even the slightest bit, the slightest bit interested in this incredible American and his story, or the battle in Afghanistan, or the war in Afghanistan, or anything, check it out. It's worth the read. And it dives into a level of detail because it's the first person account that we're not gonna hit today in this, in this episode. So worth worth looking into there. Now, 2009 in Afghanistan, we'd been September 2009. We've been at war in that country for eight years. Remember, our first troops were there. We had some CIA folks, CIA folks on the ground pretty shortly after 9 /11, but for the most part, military forces were hitting the ground in November. Conventional forces, I believe, were in December, and we've pretty much had a presence there ever since. Now, at the start of that war, it was very heavily American. Almost exclusive, well, not, no, no, no. I mean, we were working with the Northern Alliance, but at that point, that's a militia. That's not the Afghan government. So we were working with Afghans, but we weren't working with a, you know, a, a, an army, a formal army or military, if you will. But over time, we've never wanted to be in Afghanistan for the long haul. So over time, we, we've, we've helped to build up their capabilities And do what we can to where the United States and everyone involved in the NATO mission, all the countries, can step back from the day-to-day troops on the ground, patrolling, securing roads, going on raids. We'd like to get out of that game, if at all possible. One of the ways that we went about doing this was transitioning from an American-led mission. So let's say you've got a, a platoon of 40. For a long period of time in the war, that platoon of 40 was going out on missions by themselves. it it was, I was going to give a date, but really it phased um, throughout the course of the war. Certain areas that were more pacified were a little bit earlier. Um, Certain areas that were much more contested a little bit later, but we started to include Afghan troops into these patrols with us. So that platoon of 40 might've just been a U.S. platoon of 40. And then at some point it's a U.S. platoon of 40 and an Afghan platoon of 15 or 20. The the numbers were never quite one-to-one or very rarely one-to-one, but the idea is we're working side by side, and they're learning as as they go. We're, we're helping establish not just their formal military, but also new enablers, things like aircraft, medevac capabilities. It's a totally – being able to fly a helicopter anywhere in Afghanistan to pick up a casualty on the battlefield is a game changer. And it's not something that the Northern Alliance was able to do in 2001, but it's something that the Afghan military can do today because we've had kind of taken this slow and steady approach to building out their capabilities. But until that capability is in place, they're still reliant upon the use of a lot of American enablers to really shift the tide on the battlefield in their favor. And that's going to be artillery. It's going to be mortars. It's going to be fixed wing aircraft, close air support or CAS. It's going to be close combat support, close combat attack. It's going to go by a lot of different names. We're talking about uh, helicopter support, Apaches, Kiowas, helicopter gunships, and engaging engaging enemy troops on the ground, and, of course, medevacs. And I guess one more I'll throw in there has to do with uh, communications. The American communications are able to span a greater distance in a secure environment. Oftentimes, the Afghans would use just cell phones, which— Maybe can reach across the country, but the uh, the line is far from secure, and you never know who could listen in to that when you're talking about troop movements um, on the battlefield. So as the Afghan forces are being built up, the United States and all of our NATO allies, there's a lot of folks involved in this, not just the U.S., are starting to take across the country different types of roles to still provide support to where the Afghans can fight and win on the battlefield and secure the support of the population. That's going to be important. We're coming back to that but maybe not have as many Americans on the ground in that province or in that city, in that town, in that country. One of the ways we go about doing that is something known as an embedded training team. And this idea really came out of Iraq, same idea, right? We go into the country and want to help stand up their military before we, um, before we start to, to leave the area and hand over the full scope of operations and an embedded training team is going to be a, you know, usually 10 or less, Soldiers or Marines, we'll say service members, that tie in with at least a battalion-sized element. So at least an element of, say, 400 strong Afghans. And they're going to help provide weapons training. They're going to, you know, HR training, human resources, maybe um, help with payroll, help with logistics, help with planning, intelligence, command and control, all of those things. So it's a small group um usually a wide array of ranks that are going to act as advisors or mentors to this Afghan unit. And it's interesting if you think about it, because they're providing this mentorship where? On a kinetic battlefield in Afghanistan. And, you know, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom. Anybody that's been in Iraq and Afghanistan will say that you can learn so much before you go, but once you get in the fight, once you're on the ground, you start to learn more. You pick up those skills that are going to help you stay alive. They're going to help you learn how that fight actually unfolds. So these advisor teams, like the one that Meyer is on in 2009, they're still mentors. They're still advising, but they're doing it in a kinetic environment. And there's very few kinetic environments. There's very few, um, provinces more kinetic than Kunar. Kunar is in the eastern part of Afghanistan, a little northeast of Jalalabad, directly almost directly east of Kabul, and it's going to share a border with Pakistan, which in this conflict if a province shares a border with Pakistan, it's going to be a problem for the United States and for the Afghan government. That border is porous to say the least. And NATO has not been interested in pursuing Via um, has not been interested in pursuing Taliban forces into Pakistan. It's a it's a friendly country. Now there's parts of that border area that Pakistan may not really have control of, but we're not going to violate Pakistani um, sovereignty. I know we can bring up the times that we have, like the Bin Laden raid, where we went you know 100 miles into Pakistan. That's um, an interesting ordeal if you think about it. A Foreign country, flying 100 miles, landing killing somebody and leaving that, um, had potential to really go wrong. But generally speaking, that border is maintained as best we can. And, but the Taliban moved back and forth with no problem, which means in a lot of places up and down through Kunar, it's easy for the Taliban to get in and it's easy for them to get out without the United States harassing the whole way. So you'll see a lot of major, major fights, a lot of which end up being made into movies or books or TV shows, or, I mean, this area, this general area of Afghanistan is going to have, you know, the documentary Restrepo, it's going to be um, Operation Red Wing with the the Navy SEALs shot down in 2000, or it was the Navy SEAL operation in 2005. Then there was the helicopter that came in to try to assist and they were shot down. Um, you're going to have the Battle of Wanat is up in here. we're We're talking about the Battle of Kamdesh and two thousand all of those are in a relatively small area in eastern Afghanistan. It's incredibly deadly. This incredibly deadly environment is where Dakota Meyer is serving as an advisor to an Afghan unit. Now, remember, it's a war of the people. And because it's a war of the people, there's certain restrictions that come into play as we fight. And one that is going to be glaring during the battle of Ganjgal is who can authorize an airstrike? Who can authorize firing artillery? Now, picture this. There's a soldier out on the ground, soldier Marine, and they get shot at by the middle. There's nothing out there, nothing on the ground. It's open field for miles. Soldier gets shot at, sees an enemy in the field, calls for artillery support, calls in the coordinates, He's trained in this. He, he sends up coordinates that check out. They make sense. He sends it back to the guns, and the guns say what? You'd think they would just shoot it. they just shoot that round, kill the enemy on the, on the battlefield, because the guy out there getting shot at is saying, I can see him. He's 800 meters in front of me. This is his location, fire. But it doesn't work like that. It can work like that. In fact, that's often how this is trained, with air support or artillery, is that that person on the ground, whether it's a fire support officer, or a forward observer, a JTAC, whoever it might be, calls directly to the asset that they're requesting support from. And in a lot of cases, um, the in in especially with artillery, that mission is is authorized unless somebody steps in and says otherwise. As in, a better way to say it is the middleman by doctrine is supposed to trust both sides. They're supposed to trust the gun line that they're going to know how to shoot and there's or the pilot that's going to drop the bomb. And they're also supposed to trust the man on the ground that when he says, I need fire support or I'm not going to make it out of here, he's telling the truth. And that he's not going to drop it on a church or a mosque or a hospital. That is how it can work. It should work in most cases. The problem is well, this is now we're getting into stacks upon stacks of stacks, problem, stacks upon stacks of problems. But the problem in Afghanistan is that in Iraq is that this is a war for the people. So at, at, a, at a level, you have to look at it and wonder if we kill an enemy soldier, but we destroy and, and wound or kill one innocent civilian, does it level out? Or would we have been better off not killing that enemy combatant because we accidentally killed a civilian? does that do more harm to our cause than if we just would have gotten out of there and unfortunately from my perspective i'll say it feels as though that trust disappeared over time there's been accidents in iraq and afghanistan throughout well throughout american history where bombs have been dropped artillery has been fired into areas where it should not have been there have people have been held accountable for that to a degree, maybe not as much as they they could in some instances. But nonetheless, accidents happen, but it feels as though we became so averse to that possibility. And I'm not talking about this happening once a week. It was relatively rare that somebody would call in a strike and we'd find out after the fact that there were, see if I can say this carefully, legitimately innocent civilians in that home. There were regularly cases where somebody would be wounded or killed brought to an American base and you'd say, this is, this was an innocent civilian, but the guy has gunpowder residue on his hands from firing a weapon. So, but how, he doesn't have a tattoo that says Taliban. So you don't know for sure. You have to take the word. And anyways, that's going to be an issue is fire support, gun support, artillery support should go directly to the asset. But in 2009, that's not the case. In 2009, there's going to be um, a lot of middlemen there's going to be a lot of people that stand between a request for fire support and the actual asset that fires it. And without being able to see what's going on on the ground or have the capability of withholding that support. So 8 September, 2009 Meyer and his men move into an area known as Gange gal. gal is approximately 40 to 50 miles northeast of Jalalabad, which is important because there's a few air bases throughout the region, but Jabad is going to be, or as it's called sometimes, Jabad is going to be one of the larger ones. And there's certainly going to be helicopter support at least based at that location. But about 60, Af- about, let's see, just short of 100 total forces, around 100 total American and Afghan forces move into Ganjgal to meet with village elders, just a standard patrol. You know, in, in, in Vietnam, we did a lot of movement to contacts. We got out there and we, we, we went to find the enemy so we could engage and kill the enemy. Afghanistan and Iraq is a lot more key leader engagements. And let's go talk with the elders and let's go, um, remember win the people, and that's, what's happening in Ganggao on this mission. Now there's 16 or so Americans that start moving forward with this group, or I guess about a dozen or so Americans that start moving forward there are um, a series of trucks that are going to stay back a little ways at what we'll call a rally point. Meyer is tasked with staying at those trucks. Somebody has to be there. A couple people have to be there while the bulk of the forces move into the valley. He's not happy about this. And if you you dive into uh, the type of person he is and, and, and his book, this is a guy that always wants to be, um, out front. I mean, he wants to be the one taking the risk maybe is a good way to put it bearing the burden on his shoulders before anybody else does. And, you know, in retrospect, I think, um, in these embedded training team type models, there might be a argument to have more people like Meyer. And I think that's kind of the transition period we went to in the, in the years after where you had a few more, uh, few more infantry men, few more folks able to maybe a little more in security and, um, uh, and, and direct combat engagements than, than some of the folks doing more training work, right? But anyways, Meyer wants to be out there with the guys, is told no, is, is is told to stay back with the trucks and does so. Very early though, word comes down, I mean, everybody can hear this, there is, well, an ambush kicks off is what happens. The, somehow the Taliban have been forewarned of this movement. There are there's a wide array. You see this in, in every one of these engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. The estimations I have seen as low as 50 and as high as 150 open fire from three sides. So it's going to be a three-sided ambush, front, left, and right, generally speaking, down from elevated positions down onto the American and Afghan forces. So, I mean, even if you call it the lowest side of 50, which let's let's go right in the middle. We'll call it 100 so it's, it's close to one-to-one, but the Americans and the Afghans are out in the open, and the Taliban have the high ground and the element of surprise, and they use it to their advantage very well. Immediately, there are friendly forces wounded and killed, and a report comes over the radio that Meyer hears that his team, four members of his team, are cut off. This volume of fire opening up from so many directions causes people to just take cover wherever you can. And sometimes once you take that covered position and you're able to look and realize where you are, you recognize that it might not be the best spot, but the volume of fire might prevent you from moving and you might have to make that your defensive position. Meyer hears that his guys are trapped and radios a few times saying, I'd like to come, you know, I'd like to come in kind of sounds polite, but saying, I'm going to come in with my gun truck and, and we're going to, we're going to provide support. He's told no a few times before eventually he just says, screw that I'm going and he gets a driver, and they take off with Meyer at the machine gun into the breach, into this kill zone. I mean, again, RPGs, machine guns, small arms, three directions. I mean, you can get shot from a lot. And when I say three directions, you know, it's three general directions. There are, when, when he moves into this wash, kind of the, kind of a low wash that, that leads up to the, the village of Ganjgao, it's not as though there's one person shooting from in front of him. He's entering kind of a U-shaped valley, maybe is a good way to put it. There's people all around there. So the fire might be coming from generally his front, but it could be 17 different people shooting at him. And from those that, you know, the third direction on his right could be 27 fighters shooting at him. So we say three directions, but really maybe a better way to say it is from just about every direction. There's there's somebody shooting at him, um, especially as he moves in this vehicle, because with so many Afghans and Americans pinned down, not providing easy targets, as soon as a vehicle approaches, guess what everybody wants to shoot at and knock out? Dakota Meyer, riding as the machine gunner in this truck, he makes a couple trips in the uh, and in the in the he makes at least two trips in before the vehicle is completely just shot to hell and they have to replace it. During this process, he's able to. Um, provide covering fire for upwards of 24 friendlies to evacuate and and exit behind him. He's able to uh, personally evacuate at least 12 Afghan and American forces that are wounded. And over and over again in this process, as he goes back, drops off the wounded or helps folks move to the rear and moves back in, he's engaging enemy forces and kills quite a few Taliban fighters, many at point blank range. Now, Let's come back now after he's made four trips in and out of the kill zone. Let's come back now to the request for fire support because it kicked off right away. This is one of the major advantages that the Americans have on the battlefield. It's one of the reasons that there's embedded training teams with the Afghan troops on the ground. Calls went up right away. I mean, it is is almost drilled into you that when gunfire starts, you start working that mission because you don't know. You may as well have a call into the artillery just in case. Look, worst case, you don't shoot it. You may as well start finding out exactly where those helicopters are, where those fixed-wing aircraft are, because you don't know you might need it. These guys need it. And those calls went in. And they have men dying on the battlefield, countless wounded, and they're pinned down. And at this point, before Meyer makes his fifth trip in, into this deadly kill zone in Ganjgao, there's people missing. There's Americans missing on the battlefield at this point. And the requests for air support and artillery have been denied. They've been denied. This has been the subject of investigations and people were, um, maybe the right term is reprimanded. I don't know that anybody was actually disciplined here, but these calls went up. The requests were denied. And one of the main reasons given is that they were too close to these buildings and these structures that were considered, um, inhabited by civilians. Now, some might've been, there's this deal in Afghanistan where not every house on a hillside is actually a home, but is it still a home when there's Taliban fighters inside manning a machine gun and you can't get to them because they're so well protected? Is it still a home if that area is used to stack weapons and resupply Taliban fighters across the battlefield. Is it still a home if the residents of that home, including women and children, are moving ammunition along the hillside to resupply fighting positions? Is that still a home? Is that still a home maybe that you shouldn't? When I say, is it a home, is it a home based off of our rules of engagement that says you cannot engage no matter what? Well, We weren't the only ones that knew what these rules of engagement were. And the Taliban, time and again, have used that to their advantage. And this is going to be one case that they used it extremely well. Um, Hiding amongst women and children in buildings that are noted to have been residences. So the Americans won't drop bombs, we won't fire artillery. And because of that, we'll have soldiers trapped out, soldiers, Marines, and our Afghan partners trapped on the battlefield. After making four trips into this area, into the ambush, Meyer's wounded, but he makes a fifth trip. And this time, still not having found his brothers from his team, dismounts the vehicle, the relative safety we should say of the vehicle. Um, it's it's a bullet and magnet, but at least uh, there's a little bit of protection there. Meyer dismounts the vehicle, moves on foot, looking Ditch, looking in one ditch after another, looking in house after house, before he finally comes across the four members of his team that had been killed. He 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 sees an enemy fighter and and has to kill that Taliban fighter right there, who was was on the verge of starting to um, strip away some of their equipment and maybe move move the fallen service members uh, back to another location. But nonetheless, Meyer found the four recovered their bodies, recovered their effects, and was able to bring them off the battlefield to be sent home. And for his actions on that day, 8 September 2009, Dakota Meyer would be awarded the Medal of Honor, awarded in 2011, for saving so many lives on the battlefield. He's credited with with providing cover fire, the much-needed cover fire. Again, remember, no artillery, no air support. He's credited with providing the covering fire that allowed at least 24 to break contact and exit a kill zone as well as personally evacuating at least 12. And remember, he was ordered not to go in there. He wanted to go in right out the gate. He was ordered not to. He disobeyed orders to go in, which you hear occasionally with these Medal of Honor recipients of people just saying, I know that if I'm there, I can help. And he did that. He moved right into this deadly crossfire ambush during the Battle of Gangegal, And because of that, because of those brave acts, um, many, many men lived that otherwise may not have. And again, in recognition of that was awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories.